Chapter 18 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Harvey. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 18, Solar Spectroscopy. When Newton analyzed the sun's light by passing it through a glass prism, and after isolating a beam of one color, found that a second prism analyzed no further, he was taking an early step in the vast field of spectrum analysis. In a small book like this, it would be quite impossible to do justice to a domain which brings physics and chemistry into intimate fellowship with astronomy. And under the names of astrophysics and solar and stellar chemistry shows vast fields for investigation in directions beyond the wildest dreams of the old mathematical and dynamical astronomers. It would, however, be equally impossible to omit spectroscopy altogether. For our present purpose, it must suffice to note that spectroscopy in the modern sense dates back only to the time of Waterloo, when Fraunhofer, the great Munich optician, produced a map of the solar spectrum containing hundreds of dark lines, measuring and naming the more conspicuous ones with letters of the alphabet still in use for the purpose. For instance, D for a prominent line in the yellow part of the spectrum. This same D line he found in several of the brightest star spectra. Laboratory spectroscopists, by examining light from different sources, incandescent metals, burning gases, or sparks from metallic electrodes, were enabled to lay down a few elementary laws, as, for instance, that an incandescent solid or liquid body yields a continuous spectrum without any dark lines, and that certain groups of lines are identified with certain gaseous substances. The famous D line, for example, belonging to sodium. In 1832, Brewster discovered that certain lines became conspicuous as the sun was observed at low altitudes and these he rightly attributed to the Earth's atmosphere, suggesting, moreover, that the sun's atmosphere might account for the vast majority of the lines which were unaffected by the altitude of the sun. This shrewd guess was, however, apparently contradicted by Professor Forbes, who at the annual eclipse of 1836 found the light from the rim of the sun to give exactly the same spectrum as that from the center, whereas he argued that if the sun's atmosphere has any absorbing effect, it would be greater for rays from the limb. Why this is not the case is still unknown. In 1859, Kirchhoff found that sodium vapor, which ordinarily gave a bright D line, only intensified the dark D line and sunlight sent through it, and, moreover, produced a dark D line in the otherwise continuous spectrum of a Drummond light similarly sent through it. It was, therefore, obvious 
that sodium vapor exists in the sun's atmosphere and its absorption of rays of its own characteristic wavelengths of refrangibility deprives the solar spectrum of those rays, leaving relatively dark lines. The great question was at once settled, and the list of elements recognizable in the sun's envelope soon came to include not only sodium, but also iron, calcium, and several others in greater or less quantity. Kirchhoff may then be regarded as the father of astronomical spectroscopy. From the chemist's point of view, his name and fame are associated with his co-worker Bunsen, but Bunsen's work was confined to the laboratory. Kirchhoff's eight-foot map of the solar spectrum, published by the Berlin Academy in 1861 and 1862, was at once accepted as the correct interpretation, and solar chemistry was henceforth a recognized and important branch of science. Kirchhoff's law that radiation or emission and absorption spectra are the inverse of each other at the same temperature had been almost, but not quite, anticipated by more than one scientist. Comparison of the spectra of terrestrial elements with those of the sun, stars, and other celestial objects gives in this way information as to their chemical constitution, but it affects far more than a simple qualitative analysis, for the behavior of the lines is not invariably the same, and much may be divined of the temperature and pressure of some of the gaseous constituents from the changes in width and intensity of characteristic lines. Moreover, in yet another direction has new and valuable work been rendered possible. In 1842, Doppler published his principle referred to in the last chapter. Sound and light are both propagated in waves, and the frequency of the vibrations determines in the one case the pitch, and in the other the color, both being impartially described by the word tone. But if the observer and the source are in relative motion, that motion will have the effect of altering the frequency. The stock example, in the case of sound, is the whistle of a passing locomotive, which to the driver and bystander gives the same sound only at the moment of passing being of higher pitch to the bystander before passing and of lower after. The difference, depending on the velocity of the train, is easily recognizable in the case of sound, which travels at less than 20 times the speed of an express train, and Doppler stated that the same principle would be manifested in the behavior of light waves, with a velocity nearly a million times greater. This has been found practically true in the case of the Fraunhofer lines, though the absence of a simple and invariable reference mark tends to conceal the effect in the case of continuous light. The first results of the application of this principle to the determination of radial velocities of stars were communicated 
to the Royal Society by Sir William Huggins on St. George's Day, 1868. Three years later, at the suggestion of Zollner, who had in the meantime devised his reversion spectroscope to double the effect to be measured, Professor Vogel of Bothkamp succeeded in applying the method to the sun's rotation. The sun's poles may be regarded as relatively fixed for this purpose, but the rotation velocity, though small, being in opposite directions relatively to the earth at the eastern and western limbs, is sufficient to give a very slight want of agreement between spectra from the two limbs viewed together. The only lines which fit exactly being those due to the absorption by the Earth's atmosphere, the telluric lines, which are, of course, unaffected by the sun's rotation and which can be mapped out by this method. The effect of work on these lines by Professor Young of Princeton, Langley of Allegheny, afterwards of the Smithsonian, Cornu in France, Delon in Nice, and others, was to establish the validity of the method as one of very great refinement. It was but a step to apply it to the anomalous solar rotation periods of Carrington, and Speer, Dunner, a Swedish astronomer, pushed the method far beyond the spot zones and detected a rotation period of 15 degrees from the sun's pole of 38 and a half days as against 25 and a half days at the equator. His results gave rather longer periods than those deduced from observations of spots. In fact, it appears that the periods are distinct. And moreover, the determination from faculi gives a still quicker period than that from spots. This should cause no surprise, for the axial rotation effect, being more marked where the distance from the axis is greater, seems to demand a slackening at higher latitudes and also at lower levels, and it is by no means improbable that the existence of well-marked frequency zones for spots is only another effect of the same cause the gradual variation with latitude of the depth and velocity of different strata. According to this, solar disturbances might be regarded as indications of weakness or instability, where the velocity and the rate of changes are both comparatively large. Not to labor the point, we have an equatorial zone with no rate of change and practically no spots polar zones with lower velocity and no spots, and intermediate regions with velocities nearly as great as the equatorial one and yet changing with latitude. And here we do find spots. The suggestion falls far short of accounting for all the phenomena of the spot cycle, but no solar theory has yet been found beyond criticism. But the sun's rotation is only one of the problems to which the new method of research is applicable. Reference will be made in the next chapter to the discovery made in 1868 
by Janssen and Lockyer, and theoretically also by Huggins. That solar prominences could be studied without an eclipse, and for many years Lockyer studied the line-of-sight motion of prominences. Young in America, Feni in Hungary, and Trouvelet at Muden following in a similar path. They have actually seen outbursts traveling at hundreds of miles per second and vast clouds hundreds of times larger than the Earth rent to fragments in a few minutes and have proved practical coincidences between some of the great solar storms and terrestrial magnetic storms and auroral displays and after observation theory. The first result of much of Lockyer's work was the suggestion that what are known as chemical elements, inasmuch as terrestrial chemistry has failed to analyze them any further, are not really so, but are simply very refractory compounds, which can be and are dissociated in the almost inconceivable temperatures of our own and other suns. Whether the ultimate tendency of this suggestion would be to reduce all substances to variants of one primal element or by splitting up the known 14 elements, some 70 in number, largely to increase the number of ultimate radicals, is of course problematical, though from the complexity of some spectra the latter seems the more probable. But insofar as the argument rests on the behavior of certain characteristic lines under the stress of enormous forces and temperatures, or even on the presence of so-called basic lines in otherwise different element spectra, pointing to a common constituent, the case is far from being even approximately proved. The tendency of more modern research is to discredit the idea of dissociation by heat in favor of some radiative or electromagnetic effect called ionization. Maps of the solar spectrum have advanced steadily since Kirchhoff's time, and not only those of the visible spectrum, but of the invisible parts, where the vibrations are either too quick or too slow to impress the human retina as light. The very quick ultraviolet portion was mapped first by Henry Draper in 1873. The slow infrared region, for some time gradually extended by the researches of Abney and Festing and of K. Angstrom, has yielded magnificent discoveries to Professor Langley's extremely sensitive differential bolometer, and appears to be a vast extent. Shiner suggests that those slower vibrations merge gradually, rather than ending, into Hertzian waves. The standard map of the spectrum is that of Professor H. A. Rowland, who having in successive editions so largely increased the number of measured lines in the spectrum that identification of elements failed for lack of sufficient comparison spectra, spent the rest of his life in photographing the spectra 
of every known element he could obtain and comparing them with the solar lines, some 16,000 in number, in his great map. He died in 1901 with the work unfinished, but Hasselberg, Kaiser, and others have worked in the same field, and there is no lack of investigators to carry on, so obviously important a branch of research. Atmospheric lines have been studied almost to perfection. By 1878, very greatly owing to the work of Sir Norman Lockyer, the number of elements provisionally recognized in the sun reached 33. The first, hydrogen, having been discovered in 1862 by A.J. Angstrom, and 13 more having been added to the list before Lockyer began his research. If we consider hydrogen as a metal, the whole 33 were metals, and the first non-metallic element proved to exist in the sun was carbon, which, after partial evidence, had been adduced by several successive investigators, was rendered certain by Rowland, who also found another non-metal, silicon, and, though discarding some of the provisional identifications, also slightly increased the number of metals proved to exist in the sun. It is now considered practically certain that oxygen exists in the sun, though its alleged discovery by Henry Draper in 1877 has long been disproved. Janssen proved that nearly all the oxygen lines in the spectrum were undoubtedly of terrestrial atmospheric origin, but a few oxygen lines low down in the red have been adjudged to be on a different footing. A recent development of this spectral analysis of the sun has been the study of different layers of the sun's atmosphere in a monochromatic light, that is to say, by using a second slit so that only a narrow portion of the spectrum is able to reach a photographic plate, and by allowing the sun's image to travel across the first slit while the plate travels behind the second slit, thus building up strip by strip an image of the sun in, for instance, the K-Lite of calcium. Professor Hale of Chicago has thus obtained very interesting pictures, showing the distribution of calcium flocculi and the method admits of great extension. It is already practiced with success at South Kensington, and it is hoped that the new solar observatory at Mount Wilson, California, will, in this and in other ways, largely increase our knowledge of this fascinating branch of analysis. Within the limits of this book, it is not practicable to enter at any length into the development of the various forms of the spectroscope itself. What is requisite in all forms is something which will separate light of different wavelengths as widely as possible without too great loss of light. A single prism does not give very much separation, and a prism train absorbs more and more light as the number of prisms is increased. Rowland's diffraction grating substitutes for the prism a reflecting surface 
ruled with a very large number of fine lines very close together, so that by the principle of interference, duplicate rays are eliminated and a diffraction spectrum produced. Rowland's practical limit is 43,000 lines to the inch, ruled on a concave surface, so that the spectrum is brought to a focus without any absorption by an object glass, though there is a large amount lost by reflection and scattering. The idea of a grating is not Rowland's, for it was in use in Fraunhofer's time, the light being transmitted through an actual wire grating. But Rutherford and Rowland introduced, and the latter perfected, a system of machine ruling for which to avoid periodic error, a perfect screw was requisite. They also discontinued the use of transmission gratings, thus slightly diminishing the loss of light. It was long, however, before gratings could be employed for anything much fainter than the sun, though in this direction, as we shall see later, the increased power of the modern telescope comes in with great effect. End of chapter 18. Recording by Paul Harvey.